and I might talk too much. No. What have you? I hope I'm giving you what you want plus you are, more. <laughs> you are. You're doing fine. Yeah. But I, I've had people, see I was a counselor in my later years down at the postal service, you know, guys getting fired because of drugs, it's and see me and drinking and I would talk people? to them, yeah, mm -hmm. drug addiction down at St. Anthony's Highland Center, and I'm retired now, I don't know, I do a lot of volunteer work and stuff of that nature, but that was my position for the last 15, 20 years. And uh, guys would tell me, it was easy raising children then. You didn't have it hard. I said, no. Oh, you could grow it right in your front yard. Nobody cared. In the black areas, they had marijuana. We called it, uh, we called it marijuana then. We called them reefers. Okay, cocaine, morphine. I didn't know a lot about heroin. So when I, I got to working at a hotel on weekends, uh, a good bellhop, you didn't make any salary, a good bellhop had to know where to get that stuff for anybody that would ask for it. I knew where you could go get cocaine and all that. I never did use it. And, um, I smoked reefers, but it just didn't do nothing for me. And of course the more potent stuff, when they started importing it, well, it's a different ball game now. But in school, we didn't have food with none of that stuff then. You know. um, what were the uh, jobs that you had that you had? You, you worked at Emerson, like the Clean. Post office? Mm -hmm. Clean up, right? Did you work at Melville? Yeah. Did you ever work at Houston Station? No. I did for a little period, Shine and Shoes there until somebody got like a contract there. You know, we had the little shoe box and mm -hmm. bootleg shining. Did the man who more or less, uh, was that run by a white person? Mm -hmm. And then they hired you to, or you worked for them? But you, could you go in? Well, at the hotels? Yeah, hotels or Union Station. I mean, did you have to work for somebody or did you just go I never worked in the Union Station. Yeah, but that was on my own. But they yeah, eventually got it on. Like you couldn't, you couldn't go out to the airport anywhere now on your own and do any shoe shining. Could you then? You could just go in and have your shoe. Oh shining. yeah, you'd be outside, Mister Want to Shine, and like that stuff. They'd run you away, stuff of that nature. Because they had stands inside, legitimate stands. That's, that's yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, you, you had all kind of jobs, cleaning all these little stores and whatnot. Those were jobs you may get a dollar two here, a dollar two there, get three or four of them type jobs. You did pretty good. But now, if you notice, all that type of stuff is organized. Janitorial service. This company will come in and he'll have about four or five stores and he'll supply you with employees because you don't have to pay any sick leave or insurance or anything of that nature. God, the time I was in, I have seen this country make some tremendous changes. Tremendous.
yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't. Then, when I was in that terrific struggle, uh, I would have liked to change everything. Believe me, because uh, it was tough being black and extremely poor, and then to be turned down on jobs. You couldn't go to this place to eat. You couldn't do, go to this place to do that. That was rough. It was rough. If I could have saw in the future of how my children turned out, you know, I could have relaxed a little back then, but I always lived in constant fear that they wouldn't get the opportunities that I didn't have, something of that nature, you know. Yeah, because I was a bad kid, too. I knew the streets. I fought and, gee whiz, yeah, everything. Well, I meant because mm -hmm. you weren't at home. You were doing two jobs, and I thought maybe. That, too, but I never miss their little plays. I attend, always attended their PTA meetings and stuff of that nature. Because I was a street person. Yeah, and so they couldn't con me. And I saw the results. I was one of the fortunate ones. Most of the guys that I bummed around with and was getting into trouble with, they ended up in reform school and every other darn thing. So where was you the know? Why not you? I think parents, you know, I believe in God very strongly. And I say I was the chosen one. I was the chosen one. I was in groups, get locked up, and uh, my mother would come and get me. My dad told me I will not go around the corner to get you out of jail. And he meant it either. He meant it too. He would not. One time, the judge was to frighten me. We were down in juvenile court, and he sentenced me to two years in jail. He said that, and the clerk was there with the pencil, just like you have, start to write, and, I, and my mother just fell all out hollering and crying, and he took his elbow and hit this guy's hand, and he got on my mother, and I had an older cousin that was there, he got on my mother and said, uh, she said, don't send my baby to jail, I must have been about 12, 13 years old, I guess, please don't, and all that. He said, well, you can't do nothing with him, he keep getting in the trouble. And then he finally told her, I'm going to let you take him back home this time. We're going to put him on probation. But if he gets in any more trouble, we're going to take him away from you. One of those things. And my cousin got me outside and said, you ought to be shaming yourself. Subjecting your parents, your mother, to stuff like that. You know, and the whole bit. And I got home and thought about it. And I had several friends that even said the same thing. Cliff, you oughtn't be doing that. You oughtn't be bumming around with this, that, and the other. And I married a, a woman that's very moral, very moral. She was Catholic. They said Catholic and Baptist couldn't coexist, and we've been married 53 years. I'm still Baptist. She's still Catholic and uh, whatnot. But her morals were just astounding, you know. I had been working at the hotel, hustling and gambling and 
whatever, and of course in service, same thing, gambling and trying to get all the money anyway. And I would send her money home, and she knew I didn't make that much, and I had to make it from gambling and whatnot. She said, I don't want your gambling money. It's, I think, what were we getting? We were getting $21 a month or something like that to send home allotment. She said, I don't want you. You'll get hurt. And, and so what what I do? I kept the money and started partying with it, throwing it away, you know, and stuff of that nature. And uh, so there had to be a guardian angel around me some kind of way. There had to be. And where the morals stuck, I don't know. I played truant from school, or we call it play hooky from school, so much. And when my dad finally found it out, he got me one day, we stayed in the rear of 2800 Delmar. It was Morgan then, and they was paving it and changing the name to Delmar. And uh, we were walking up the alley. He said, you haven't been going to school all this time. You've been leaving home every day. I thought you was going to school. And uh, he said, do you know, I come here from the South, not knowing nothing to try to get a better life for you, and you aren't going to school. And he turned me around, put my head up against the wall, and pulled a knife out of his pocket and put it to my throat. And he, I had never seen my dad like that. He said, I will kill you doing this. I said, Dad, I ain't going to do no more. You know, one of those type things. And I got home, and he made me go to bed, and my mother slipped me some food. But from then on, I got perfect attendance at school, you know, deals like that. Because they didn't know city ways. So consequently, when I come in from school or whatever, go out and play. And I always get with the bad bunch. And yet, Chris was raised right up with me. He got with the good bunch all the time. Chris Newman, same thing. We raised up together. And uh, he stayed my friend my what years. We're still best friends. Mm, gorgeous. And as a matter of fact, uh, when he and Ernestine married, he was going out to Stowe Teachers College, and he said, hey, Cliff, I got this fox I want you to meet. She said, look, <laughs> I never will forget that. Yeah. Okay, you had your little, little factions. My wife was from now around 14th and Biddle down around the Columbus Square area, down there. Well, when you got out of your neighborhood, you were subject to getting beat up. But when you got up, they only had two high schools. All of us eventually met at Vishayan High School, and that's how I met her. But at night or sometime, I'd want to go down and see her. I'd have to run all the way back home. Because it even had that difference. Yeah, but it wasn't the killing type. No, no, no I understand. No, just a bunch of guys get on you, you know. Say Jefferson, the general area of Jefferson and Market. That's why the E.G. Adams, all that's located. Okay, that's the area I was raised. She was down around. What's down there now? Uh, Post Dispatch Building, all over in that area. So that was even different. Those oh, each neighborhood was different. The South Side, south of the railroad tracks, right. LaSalle, Hickory, 
Montrose, all those, those very good friends of mine over there. But at night, you didn't, you know, that wasn't my turf. So what about West of Grants? Well, they were the elite. That's where all of our school teachers and whatnot lived. And some of the high school had quite a few of the elite, you know, Did we you considered it. Not really. They were adversaries mm -hmm. on the baseball, football field, basketball, whatever. You know, I, did, I had no ambitions. But you didn't mix with them except you know. dances. Dances? Yeah. They had a dance hall out there on Sarah and Finney, karaoke. And we had the castle ballroom. They come down there. We sort of respected each other's turfs. Beautiful dance hall that mandated you dress decently. You can come in looking like a bunch of thugs. And had big bands, Count Basie, Jimmy Lunchford, all those type dancers. Yeah, sure, sure. They have ladies' night. Ladies get in free, and you had to, the man had to pay 15 cents. I had a tough time raising that 15. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was just, it was tremendous. What happened when you got sick? Go over to hospital number two. And then they eventually built Homer G. Phillips. But uh, number two, 2700 on Lawton, was an emergency room for the black people. They had a TB ward. They had a lockup ward. They had a psychiatric ward there. Eventually that became a hotel, and a lot of the big bands started playing there. Once they opened up Homer G. and they evacuated the building, then uh, Al Fine open up a lounge and hotel there called the Midtown Hotel. Still a little apprehensive, self-conscious. I was quite uncomfortable when they opened up the movies when I I had cleaned up around the Fox and different places like that. But around in the late 50s, early 60s when we started could go to some of those. They were a little gun shy about it. And uh, down to the ambassador downtown and the various theaters. Gun shy. You, you didn't feel welcome and uh, you thought somebody was going to say something to you. And some of them were uncomfortable also. You'd sit in a seat and they'd move. Stuff of that nature. It was still a tense type thing that integration. And they start didn't just slam it on like they had a black lunch counter down at Woolsworth and they had a basement balcony lunch counter for black people and uh, I think it was famous the first one opened up. Famous or sticks, I can't remember exactly which one. And they began to gradually open. And when they threw the city open, so to speak, you were afraid to go to Southside places. They wouldn't serve you anyway even though the various laws had passed. It, it was quite a tense type period. Are you comfortable everywhere now? Real comfortable. Everywhere. Comfortable the best friend I have outside of Chris's wife, we ran that program for the Postal Service, Marty. I'd go down this house, all his neighbors, he stayed way south. And the neighbors all wave at me. And He's black. 
white. He's white. Yeah. No, 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 no. His name is Fitzgerald. We tease each other. Oh, okay. I'm Fitzpatrick. And he's Fitzgerald. And I'll call him sometime and, and say, Are you Fitzpatrick or Fitzgerald? And he carried it back. But, but his kids, I watch them grow. They run up and hug me the whole bit. One of his sons got to manage in the post office out in Chesterfield. And they had an open house some years ago. And he's, his dad couldn't come. And I went, his dad was in the hospital. He said, my, my dad will be here. And when I hit the door, he hollered, Dad! And looked <laughs> we had a lot of fun with it, but I'm, I'm quite comfortable. Can you tell um, when you need somebody to another car? Can you tell yeah. um, how it's going to be? Could you tell me? I mean, yeah, sometimes you could. I ran into it a lot, me being the only black counselor down at St. Anthony's Hospital Highlands Center. Most of the clientele were white. I did run into some problems. People would be quite uncomfortable with me initially, but as you can tell how I talk, I try to make them comfortable, and that's what you have to be very good friends. My best friends now are people that I have worked with, treated, own large corporations, and everything else now. And so I'm not uncomfortable. Not really. It can go the other way because most people that when they come in a treatment program like they they under the gun, these are found in bankruptcy, or they marital problems, financial job related problems, and they're quite hostile. And, and most people deny it. I don't drink too much. It's the weather. It's the job. It's the wife. It, you know everything else. The whole bit. They're real hostile. Most of them. The older people, my parents, but not eventually we moved these things us. They talked about it. But my parents talked about it a lot. Well, when you were a child, it was always talked about, mentioned, and what have you. But, uh, I tell you, even then, I think we ourselves were programmed to feel a little inferior. You know, we had black baseball players, football, basketball, but we didn't think they were good enough to be in the major leagues. But the real reason was because of their color. And so when Jackie Robinson in 1947 finally was in the major leagues, I remember we couldn't sit in the grandstands out here at Sportsman. You can only sit in a pavilion and bleachers. And man, we fill that up. Pride, the whole bit picketed and fought. And 
what have you. It was a certain amount of inferiority that had been fed to you. You can't do that. I had a fellow that I started with at the post office, and eventually he disappeared. White fellow. Next time I saw him, he had the pencil behind his ear, and he was working in the office upstairs. And I thought immediately, I said, boy, that guy's real smart. One of those type things. Not facing the reality, the only reason I couldn't go up there was because of my color. But I thought, well, and you always taught that uh, they take the best qualified, you see. They told you that? Oh, sure. So, and you try to swallow it? Oh, yeah. To a degree, it's survival. I think. You know, I think these young people now is letting a lot of this stuff destroy them. We didn't have nothing. Well, on a merry way, fought within the system pretty good. We're the reasons that they open up a lot of the theaters, even before. Now we picketed. I had lay in banks and lunch counters and all that type stuff, you know, and whatnot, and. But yet I have some of my children would tell me, Dad, how did you tolerate? That must have been embarrassing, having to go to the back door, to go to a toilet, or do this, that. Hey, it was a way of life. Did they, did they question you? Oh, yeah. My children? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. They didn't believe. See, the stuff that they got, they took for granted that everybody got it that we didn't. My daughter was in the first integrated class over at Beaumont High School, you know, and they beat him up in the whole bit. And I followed her over one day. And just a lot of the stuff they took for granted. And we had, it was even a battle once they got into the integrated schools like that. It was a terrible battle. I had to go and fight because I remember my daughter was a straight-A student, and she would, uh, she come home one day and saw the tears that she had gotten a B in English. And, but I never did take their word for it. I said, well, let's go and see your teacher and talk about it. We get over to the school, and the teacher was showing me points where she didn't deserve an A. And, black. and then she made a statement, no black children deserve A's in English. You know, and I said, Wait a minute, and whatnot. And so I, I went above. I went to the principal, and of course, as a good superior person would be, he backed her until I brought that in. I, I said, "You know what she told me?" He said, "Well, wait a minute. Let's go talk about it." And, and they changed it. And she was trying to show the point because we have that southern dialect, I guess, or whatever the case, a ghetto slang. Yeah, that's true. And uh, she made that statement, you see. So they, my kids got confidence in me in that type of stuff. And that during that integrated period, I fought like mad. I fought like a dog for my son. He was an athlete. And he started off with Beaumont. Mr. Stanton over Beaumont was a terrific coach. And he wanted to play on him. But when he kept juggling in boundaries, he had to end up going to Hadley. But where the crown and glory come by was he was going to use, lose a half year of eligibility on the basketball team. 
and I always took that as being his way out of the ghetto, getting an athletic scholarship to college, which he eventually did. And I didn't win another year a half year because I argued that the boundaries changed. We was in Beaumont District at one time, and they changed the boundaries. And the superintendent down at the Board of Education argued me down that they didn't change it, you see. And I asked my boss, I was carrying mail at that time, I said, can I go, I worked out at Jefferson Memorial Station downtown, I said, can I go up to the post and get some back papers? Because every time they changed the boundaries, the maps would be in the papers. And uh, I said, can you have somebody take my route this evening? He was making two or three trips. He said, uh, do like you always do, stop drinking beer and go over to the post. <laughs> well, anyway, I went over there and I went through papers and finally I got it. And I go back over to the board and this guy wouldn't talk to me at first. I said, you're going to talk to me. We legitimately lived in this boundary. And he looked at it and he says, oh, by God, you did. And he didn't lose a half year's eligibility, you know. So the kids had a little, little faith in me a little bit, but I wouldn't back them to the point where they were always right. If I found they were wrong, they knew they was going to have problems with me. Didn't they all get scholarships? No, no. Oh, heck no. I had four girls and one boy. They got curator scholarships and stuff of that nature, academic, you know, and paid partial mm -hmm. deals like that. Okay, my daughter finished Homer G. Phillips School of Nursing, and she had did a she was a January graduate, my older daughter, and I didn't want her to be in the streets for half, so she did go half year to, to Stowe. And then later on, she became a anesthetist. She went to Kansas City General Hospital and the University of, of uh, Missouri, Kansas City, and she got three or four masters. The other one went to SIU, and the other one uh, went to uh, Stowe. Well, it was Hair Stowe by the time I young Rosemary. And I, I would always tell them, I'll give you that first year, but ain't going to be no one of them summers. We're going to get out and work and try to work on the others, you know, stuff of that nature. Rockers, boy, he got quality education. He was mad because Rockers was just integrating at that time, pretty much. He was the only black guy on the basketball team. Kansas City, it's a Jesuit school, tremendous school. But he had scholarship offers from a lot of the black colleges, yeah, and whatnot. And I wanted to go to Kansas City mainly, and it was close. And Father Zimmerman, I raised him up as Catholic as I agreed to, and Father Zimmerman wanted him to go to Rockhurst. And I said, you know, he was mad at me at first. And that was which church? Uh, St. Matthew's. Mm -hmm. And uh, no. Never did. That's what I'm telling you. 53 years we've been married. I'm yeah, still a Baptist. Right. Sorry. She's Catholic. <laughs> and uh, I always took the attitude that he wouldn't be a professional basketball player, so I wanted him to get some quality education. And he went to uh, Rockhurst, and then he won a fellowship to Wash U. He got his master's in business administration out of Wash U. Do you think No. no. 
I think uh, they were they had a lot of nerve and a lot of hardships to overcome. They put in the first integration class back in 54, 58, and 60. And uh, I think they had a little rough, but they didn't let it bother them. When they would leave the school, they go right back into their little black neighborhoods and do their things there, you know. They did participate because my daughter was the first, I think, black girl to, to let her in a sport over at Beaumont. They did their little, they had fun. Mm -hmm. But I don't think like we did. I guess everybody say that. The good old, you, you know what they say, the good old days? Some of them were good old days. And mm -hmm. It just depends on where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. um, how about the coloration? colors. It did in that uh, there were some jobs that wouldn't hire dark-skinned black people. And consequently, uh, I guess, you know, everybody, I think, it just, you can go back in history, everybody liked to have somebody that kind of look down and uh, feel superior of uh, what have you, you know, and uh, that was the case. There were a lot of, uh, like, famous and sticks when they started hiring black. They wouldn't hire dark-skinned people, you know, stand at the end of those escalators and run elevators and stuff like that. They didn't hire dark-skinned people. And some of our better restaurants, black restaurants now, hired the light-skinned girls. Black restaurants now? Yeah, no, no, not now. Oh, Then, that's what you were talking about, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I think you had a little class deal going on, probably still do it in, in all races, I imagine. That everybody, you know, I love what Martin Luther King said about that drum major instinct that everybody have a little bit of want to be out in front, you know, and what have you. I'd like to get back and then I'll let you go and catch it. Um, to I ain't got nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Um, to uh, when things started to open up and you go places, mm -hmm. um, where where did you like to go, uh, or where did you think was where did you feel welcome? I think most of the department store restaurants, places of that sort. You were very careful in your choices. You didn't venture way out. Very careful. And by word of mouth, you would find out you would be comfortable there. Um, I think it's really been interesting to, to learn that, you know, if someone is seated, I've heard it said that if they were seated next to the kitchen, that place and even on the trains at that time I understand mm -hmm. they set up by the engine the smoke you know stuff yeah. of that nature and uh, would try to seat your way I don't think a lot of that happened anymore. 
that did happen. I know when I first started carrying mail, I was delivering mail into a tavern. I had, the guy asked me to bring him some stamps, and I told him I would. And uh, this was a poor neighborhood, too, poor white neighborhood. And uh, I brought him the stamps, and he said, you want to drink mail, man? And uh, I said, yeah, I'll take a little drink. And he set the whiskey bottle there. Then he proceeded to get a soda bottle and start to washing it out. He said, some of these people, it ain't me, some of these people around here might resent drinking out of the glass behind you and whatnot. And I said, well, forget it. And he was apologetic the whole bit. But he was going to get a soda bottle that somebody else had there, but then they drank out of something, and he was going to wash it out for me, and I drank out of the soda bottle. I had been in deals like that, and I had another fellow I was carrying mail with, and he said, let's stop in here and have a sandwich. And I stopped, we stopped in, sit down, and I was helping him. I was still a sub, young man, about 20, 21 years old. And they said, you can eat here, but he'll have to go around the back like that. You know? And he proceeded to start trying to raise hell up. I said, no, no, forget about it. Don't worry about it. But, oh, about 49, 48, somewhere in that range. So with all In retrospect, I guess so. But I would like for things to have been better. But I wasn't, I was happy. I wasn't tormented by a lot of things. I wasn't caught up. We didn't have the black people then, didn't mainly go to psychiatrists and to be analyzed. You left them problems. You know, you'd be discriminated against. You'd laugh about it and put it behind you. Go on your merry way. And nobody hardly had any darn thing. That ha In 63, I moved out here in University City, their own partage. And they were just building those 17 houses, and then I was the first one to move back in this little cul-de-sac. And they burned a cross up at the end of my street. My own postal people wouldn't give me a delivery back there. The, the manager guy over here at the U-City Post Office said I had to come pick up my meal. And I worked for the post office, and I knew they could have done it. But the rule is 50%, if they're building new homes, 50% of the houses in order to get delivery. But now they build these cluster boxes. It's a lot different. And I had to rent a box over at U-City Station. But I knew a lot of people upstairs in the post office. And I was sitting one of the big wheels, and I told him, I said, well, I work for the post office and can't even get my mail delivered. And he said, why? And I explained to him, he said, oh, my God. I started getting deliveries. <laughs> Why did you uh, decide to do It was my children. I had a house in the 3800 Kennedy, a two-family flat, five up, five down. I was paying $69 a month on my mortgage. And uh, I always liked to tinker, and Chris did, too. And I had it fixed up real good, but the neighborhood was deteriorating. So as each one of my kids come out of school, uh, on the last one, I just had Rosemary left there. He said, Dad, you got to sell this house and move. I said, I ain't selling this place. I'm just going to be able to enjoy things now. 
you know, but the neighborhood is deteriorating so badly, and they, they browbeat, browbeat, browbeat to finally, they did it. You know, they got money together to, to for the, I didn't know about closing costs and stuff of that nature, brought an interior decorator in, tell me, you can't take that furniture out there. I said, you gotta be crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they bought furniture. They still doing it. They, we had twin beds in there when they visit. Well, they all got married. They won't sleep in one bed, so they told me, we're tired of them twin beds. I said, uh, well, hey, I'm, I got my king-size bed. And so they said, they, we, we, that's what we're giving you for Christmas. They bought a queen-size bed put in the, one of the rooms. <laughs> but they always did stuff like that. And that's the reason I moved. All the neighborhood. They mandated it. I didn't particularly want to move anywhere. Yeah, but I mean, my wife is kind of caught up on the upgrade, you know, a little bit. But I wanted to just coast a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Been to Nose to the grindstone. First ten years, we stayed in a housing project down in Car Square Village. Brand new. Brand new, 49, moved in, brand new home. I said, look right here. And uh, each, you know, the kids had bedrooms, and as I had a, another kid, they'd give you a larger apartment. This was life after Milkweed. Yeah, oh yeah. Tell me about it. Oh, it was great. We took pride in our apartments, brand new. I painted it, and I see some of the guys, this guy Swartz, had a draper place down on Biddle Market. He was just little then, starting out. And we went down, and my wife was raised up with the kids and everything, and they made us some draperies. And uh, I got me out. She was raised up with the Yeah, down on 14th Street, all down there. And uh, I bought an iron pipe at a junkyard, made brackets to hold the draperies and the neighbors, and we planted grass and uh, put sticks down so they couldn't walk on it the whole bit. And uh, we had a good neighborhood association. But when I started making more money at the post office, they put me out. You had to bring your last three check stubs and uh, each year sign a new lease. And they said, you gotta move, you make too much money. And that's how I got that place out on Kennelly. Kick it, booted us out. So that was like, so you moved there for 49? No, 41. Well, well, 42 I moved in. You moved in the first Yeah. I thought you just said. 42. And moved out in 49. When I moved out on, well, the first of 50. Forty-three, forty-four, part of forty-five. I was drafted from now on in Square Village. I remember the day that I was drafted. Uh, I'd gone to Jefferson Barracks, and again, that was a descript. You was you were you were separate units. They didn't put the blacks and whites together. Gave you exam, put you in different battalions, and so when I was down at Jefferson Barracks and passed the physical, they had a guy sitting in the Army, Navy, Marine. And they picked me for the Navy. 
And I said, I don't want the Navy. I don't like them tight pants and stuff, you know. Get on over there, you know, one of those deals. So what happened, the Naval Recruiting Office was on 12th, in the Federal Building on 12th and Market. And the guy told me, I'll give you an extra five hours in St. Louis, and I, you can get a layover in uh, Washington, D.C., five hours, and you get to see the Capitol. I'd never hardly been out of St. Louis, this, that, and the other. And I said, okay. But I wouldn't go back home, because I never will forget the day that I left home. My wife was laying on the floor crying and hollering, you know. And I didn't. So and out there. Yeah, go over to Union Station, and uh, I had five hours to go back home, but I I didn't want to go through that ritual again. Yeah. You know, the crying and the kids and all that stuff. It was real tough. So where did you go? Bainbridge, Maryland. The guy, show you how that racism cropped up again. It was two of us blacks sitting in that recruiting room then, and, and they, they had just mandated that they integrate up at Great Lakes, okay? So we were sitting there, and this guy picked me in, a fellow named Floyd Kenchelow. He's a, a photographer, one of the large newspapers here. He's retired now, I'm sure. But anyway, he said, you, you, come here. We went over there, he said, you guys got high school education, I know. Guys in here, the rest of them ain't gonna be nothing but deck swabs and gobs. Said I'll send you up to Bainbridge, Maryland. You can be a cook and baker. Go to cook and baker school. When you get out, you can cook for one of these large hotels. They make a lot of money. I looked at Floyd. He said, "Plus, I give you an extra five hours here in St. Louis. Your train won't leave till when? And when you you change trains in D.C." I'll give you another five or six hours there. And we <laughs> I said, fine. So we get up at Bainbridge. You say fine because you had nothing, no other choice and uh, are fine because... No, I, what I didn't know at that time, I could have refused. I could have made it send me to Great Lakes with the rest of the guys, you see. But I signed the paper that I waived that. I didn't know I was to go to Cook and Baker School, so to speak, I thought. We get up there, well, you learn how to salute and ride off the bed in boot camp. And finally, I ask uh, the company commander, who going to start learning how to cook? He said, you know, you're about the fifth guy that come and ask me that. He said, you ain't going to cook nothing. He said, you know what a steward is? You learn how to wait on officers, shine their shoes, lay out their uniforms, blah, 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 all that, you know. And all of us say, and if I see that guy now, I think I'd jump on him. I remember him vaguely. No, not Floyd. That was the guy who went in with me. Oh, you said that. The, 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 no, the guy that come and told us that right. stuff. I thought you said that he was the No, he was with me, Floyd Kenchelow. Oh. We were the two that but he who told. Was the, who was the white man? I can't remember his name, but I see his face. But who was the photographer? Kenchelow. Boot camp there. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you know? To San Diego, and then you get your ship, and the 
God, we went everywhere. We was in a service branch, you know. You were, you were a ship. Yeah, and in a service branch. And of course, your quarters in most in places were separate. Everywhere, it was just taken for granted. Wasn't the Navy just about the worst as far as uh, integration? Yeah, they had. Racism. Yeah, you know, Forrestal was the. Uh, Oh, you get a little chilly. This one? Forrestal was the uh, Secretary of the Navy at that time. And he appointed a black guy that was with the NAACP, Lester Granger, to go around these various naval bases and see how uh, was everything and to work on the integration, which Roosevelt said that there wasn't going to be any integration. He said because it would be to the detriment of the black sailors and soldiers. Then they would get promotions. They'd be just promoting the white guys. But now they can get to be sergeants and in their own outfits and lieutenants and whatnot. You know, and so uh, they sent Lester Granger around to these various bases. I remember when he came to Bainbridge, they handpicked guys from the deep south to go talk to him, and he asked him about how did they like the base. I like it, good food, you know, this and the other. He had come and gone, and none of us knew about it. And some of us were, were pretty militant. So what would be the difference in talking to people in the South? Oh, if he had told to talk to us, which we eventually wrote him a letter about the conditions, the segregation, the this, that, and the other, you know. Yes, but why, why would you? Oh, they thought some of those guys had never slept on a sheet. They was on these farms, South Carolina, sharecropping, and very primitive living, and that was an upgrade for them. They loved it. Yeah. And, but we had had a little taste of picketing and dissenting and, you know. Is it hard, or can you trust my best friend, just about yeah. everybody. Yeah, because we couldn't have did anything without whites. Couldn't have did anything. Nothing. Even in our neighborhood, Abraham Pass, Tanakh and all that bunch, we had to be pretty good friends. Treated decently. Sure. And there was someone on your side. I was down at Emerson Electric on the sixth floor. I worked right next to a restroom, right next to it. But the black restrooms they had colored was on, on a two and in the basement. So I'd had, if I had to go to the restroom, get on the elevator, go down the two of the basement. So one day I had to go pretty bad. And we were doing peace work and I didn't want to lose that time. I ran into this white toilet right next to me and toilets didn't have any doors on them. I'm sitting in the toilet and this superintendent comes through. He walked by and then he took a double take. Then he left out. Then he brought about five other big wheels in there with me with him. And they standing around me <laughs> over there. And so then they went on out and I left out and they come here. And uh, the immediate boss was a guy named Pat Crawford, beautiful. He apologized so vehemently, so clear. I'm embarrassed by this, but uh, they're going to reprimand you for going in that toilet. 
a little bit, and I think I did get a day off. You know, see, but I would just make some overtime and make it up. Didn't you want to beat him up? Didn't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You you were ex you were extremely hostile and whatnot. But I needed the job, and you know, a whole bit didn't want to embarrass my father, who had been there many years, and he was a loner. That's why. I'm so glad it didn't instill a tremendous amount of hostility, but what it did, and that's what happened to my father too, I think, unconsciously, it gave me the impetus to try not fix it so my children wouldn't have to go through anything of that nature, you see, to fight harder. And we were often taught that education was your way out. You know, respect people, but command respect also. And the only way you're going to get it is if you give it. Strong believers of that. So consequently, I, I look at, got a little hot-headed. Now, my dad was from the old, the stubborn man, as I said, proud. In 1946, I think it was, Emerson Electric signed a closed shop union contract. When you start working for Emerson, Within 30 days, you had to join the union in order to work there. Okay. My dad said, I'm not joining the union. They can fire me. And I had been there since the late 20s. He said, that union don't mean nothing for black people. We haven't got any better jobs or nothing else. We can't bump nobody else. I ain't paying. So, so they would have fired him. But I was working in the union, got to be a shop steward. You would get fined $3 if you didn't go to one out of three regular meetings, and you would be fined $5 for going to a regular meeting. And if you didn't pay those fines, you get kicked out of the union, you lose your job. I would have to go there, sign my dad's name to the books. He never knew till he died. He told people he resisted, and they didn't do nothing to him. But I signed the books. So he, they thought he was doing Yeah. Sure, I put him in the union. I paid his dues the whole bit, and what have you. When you talk about your grandfather, and each one wanted better for the next one. And David. Yeah, yeah, he's a beautiful guy. His children? Yeah. That one graduating from San Jose State in May. I'm already on my way out there just about. And Dave is a director with IBM out of White Plains, New York. He was in Paris for five years as a director. Had me over there. He'd send for me and my wife every summer to go over there. That was great. I always tell him, this is a long way from housing project. And every time he come here, I take him down and ask him, hey, that's where you were born. How does he like that? Oh, he laugh about it. He remembers it. Yeah, he laughed. And whatnot. And he said, he. He feel racism in the company now. Pretty good. He didn't. By him going to a, well, when he first got up at Rockers, he, he felt deprived, isolated. He'd write me and tell me he didn't have any social life. And then, of course, he met a lady up there in Kansas City, and he began to mellow out. And uh, then he felt a little bitterness out at Wash U. He was studying business administration, working on that master's, and 
said none of the guys would hardly steady with him. They had steady groups and he had a struggle there. He was bitter there. And then when he went to work, he felt little tinges of it. About 63, 64. Was the St. Louis, was that the changing time? Yeah. And that's what people say. I was during that transition period. Yeah, but was that the way you felt it? That, that was a changing decade for St. Louis? Yeah, 60s? Yeah, I mean, yeah. people write about it and, and all that. Sure. It was a changing time for the country. Like Chris was in an all segregated unit in the Air Force, but when he was called back, it was an integrated unit. When he's called back for the Korean conflict, yeah. We skip around a lot, but I don't care. Well, I'm leaving all these notes for you to assemble. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Put them in a chronological order. Make it harder, but yeah. um, when you came back from the service, mm -hmm. did you expect something that you didn't get? Yes. The first big slap in the face I got. I left a job making $150 a week, because I was working a lot of overtime, and I was working on the machine, hourly pay ride. I come back to a job making $26 a week. You see? That's when they told you that was your wartime job. That was, that job that I had out at 8100 West Florissant was my wartime job. And they could, only job they could, had to guarantee me was the a job I held before the war, okay? Stuart Symington at that time was the president, chairman of the board out of Emerson Electric. He event, Truman appointed him as secretary of the Air Force. That's how, that's how we got all these big contracts here, McDonnell, Douglas, they were small companies then. Curtis Wright was the big one, and Emerson Electric. And uh, I wrote letters to him and everybody. I said, all right, because my dad knew him. My dad cleaned his offices, and he got to know Stuart. So when I was on the legislative committee, and we had to go to Washington to lobby for salary increases for the postal employees, I was the only one could get to Stuart Symington. In that, I said, uh, my dad worked for your company for many years. He worked for you personally. And uh, he said, what was your dad's name? And I said, Fitzpatrick. He said, you mean Clarence? I said, yeah. He said, how is he? I said, oh, he's passed. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But what he would do, he would always say, you guys don't need to come in taking up my time. I have never did anything against the Postal Service. I said, but we want you to introduce a bill for us. He wouldn't do it. And with, when they'd have the roll calls, by his name being in the S's, the bill would be cut and dried one way or another anyway. Yeah. And so uh, that would get our foot in the door always. But uh, it, was, it was a struggle. It was a tough struggle. I don't think you ever finished um, telling me about the uh, university. Okay. Police come. 
well, first, when I moved back there, I was on a bowling team, bowled over here. I come out of there, and the police stopped me, Shannon. What are you doing coming out of there? I said, I live back here. He said, oh, come on now. I said, I live back here. And I showed him, I think it's papers or something, I showed him, I remember. And he said, darn, I didn't realize that. He said, well, I'm sorry, then. I said, oh, fine, I'm glad you're on the ball. One of those things. And my daughter, I kept her in Beaumont. She was in her senior year. I didn't want her to leave. And a couple of ladies would turn their dogs on as she was going down to the bus stop to catch a bus to go down to Beaumont. And I had to walk with her. And I had a stick. The copper told me then, said, get you a brick or stick or something, honey, told my daughter. But she was terrified of it. So I walked with him one morning behind it, and here comes this little dog out, and I got a stick and run, and the lady ran out, don't hit my dog, you know. And I said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself turning the dog out on this girl. My daughter screaming and whatnot. Well, that kind of broke that up a little bit. And, uh, yeah, they threw eggs up against it. The police come up against it. My canton runs in back of my house. Canton. C-A-N-T-O in the street, Canton. And they threw eggs up against it. And uh, so uh, a lawyer come by. I can't remember his name. He said, we are trying out here, and you said, to stabilize these neighborhoods. He said, what you're going to have, not stabilization of a neighborhood, nor integration, you're going to have changing neighborhoods at the rate they're going. They're just opening a block at a time and you're buying it all up. He said, buy half a block and then quit. Get your organizations together and then buy another half and you will have some semblance of integration. But this is going to run your property down and everything the rate it's going and it came true. You mean if everybody They couldn't. They couldn't abandon their homes. They couldn't leave unless somebody bought them. Right. And he, what he was saying, and then you would have neighborhood integration. That's what the, 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 yeah. the black people should just move into part of the block. Right. Right. But they had a bunch of realtors in. They called them blockbusters. They'd go into a block and see you. Say, hey, we'll give you X number of dollars for your house because the value is going to go down because these black people moving in. They tell you that. Sure, blockbusters. I had a, a fella, I won't call his name, he's pretty big now. He got rich that way. But them threats, he'd hire some downtrodden looking woman with two or three kids to walk through the neighborhood. Then he'd show up late on. Yeah, he, he did it and made a lot of money, but he fought the integration too, the whole bit. Well, I could keep you here for days, but uh, you've well, got a pretty good general idea, I think, you know. I do, but, but there's so many things that I don't even know about mm -hmm. that, that would be of interest. So um, I would be happy for you to uh, talk about anything that... I'll tell you what, if you think of anything in the future, don't hesitate to buzz me. 
and I'll elaborate on it. and neighborhood, the neighborhood concepts, the neighborhood schools. Teachers had pride. You had your own doctors, lawyers, dentists in the areas. You, you didn't know you were the pride. Everybody wanted to make more money, and you couldn't. That was the one thing. Yeah. You could not. If you were a teacher, I had a master's, a Ph.D., you only could teach in the black schools, you see. You couldn't spread your wings out. You couldn't reach your full potential. The athletes couldn't do it. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody could reach their full potential. No. It's hard, but I think you got a better opportunity now. I think racism will always be and that's just not in America. That's worldwide. You see it everywhere. You know, the fascism. It's cropping back up. I just see in Russia. Yeah. The fascist uh, party got a lot of votes, you know. And the communism, you saw it kind of crumble. And you see the Irish is fighting like dogs over there, bombing different things of that nature. So, you know, in Bosnia, in all those places. It's there. It's there. But see, where you get that false sense of security in America, they preach the land of the free, the home of the brave, everybody have equal opportunities, so to speak, and all that. Well, people come over here with that expectation. And what happened now, the pendulum has sort of turned a great deal now. People are coming from over in Korea and different places the Melvin Bob coming with those expectations and they don't get it, then what you got? You got an explosive situation on your hands. Real explosive. So I'm glad I lived, lived and come up in a little period that I did. Didn't have anything, had something to strive for, and I think I pretty much achieved what I wanted. I really did. My son constantly got on me. Uh, about buying stocks and bonds. He's an investor. He loves it. And the whole bit. Why don't you, Dad? I said, hey, I have nothing to buy it for. I'll play the string out just like I am now. I'm, I'm comfortable. Do you have benefits? Lots of them. Okay, yeah. so the system has, that part of the system has worked fairly well. Sure, I kept my insurance with the government and I'm covered by Medicare now and uh, Rarely had to use it. I have a, still have my federal insurance health plan, a whole bit, house paid for, you know. I don't have any money. Anybody raised five kids off of making $25, dollars $40 a week, you can't save anybody. It was tough. I tell my son, I said a lot of the stuff was shady. Your mind had to work like crazy. They didn't have computers in them days. I'd run down American Finance and borrow a limit and then run across the street to public finance and borrow the limit there. For each one would know it. They'd ask, do you have any credit? You know, I'd get a letter.